What's up? This is Perry Noble. Thanks for downloading this edition of the Perry Noble Leadership Podcast. This is our third message from the New Spring Leadership Conference, and it was my friend Judd Wilhite from Central Christian Church in Las Vegas. And Judd came out of the starting gate in an unbelievable way, encouraged church leaders that what we're doing as church leaders is the most impactful thing on the planet. And then he went on to just give an unbelievable talk. I know you're going to enjoy Judd Wilhite and what he had to say. All right. Well, hey, it's so good to be here with you guys. And what a morning we've had already, huh? I mean, it's just been uh, awesome. I was uh, just so blown away by Perry's talk, took so many notes, told him it just rocked my world. And then, you know, Driscoll just got up and uh, ripped my heart out. So uh, other than that, we're all good. So uh, I'm really, really thankful to be here with you. And I want to talk to you about the church and how important the work that you're doing through the church really is in the world. You know, in my own life, I'll tell you a little bit about myself. I grew up in Amarillo, Texas. I had parents that sort of went to church, and uh, they would go to church, and I was never really into it. I was never really down with it. I mean, when they would attend, I would tell them that uh, I was going to youth group, and uh, I would kind of wait till church started, and I would walk through the church, and I had my little plan down. I would walk outside the church then, once it got going, and I would walk the alleys in these residential areas around our church and smoke cigarettes and watch people walk in the building. I did this for years, week in and week out, and I would go, and, and uh, I would just hang out, you know, and I never understood it. I'd watch people walk in, and I'd think, you know, why? Why do they go? Go into the church. What do they get out of it? What is the point? So I just walk around, smoke cigarettes. At the end of it, I get in the car. My parents would say, you know, well, uh, well you know, what'd you learn? I say, well, I learned about Jesus. You know, <laughs> what'd you learn about Jesus? This has always shut my mom up. I, I, Jesus loves me. And honestly, like moms, you know, they're just kind of like, oh, that's good. You know, so like we were good to go. We trucked on down the road. Of course, I was a six-year-old now, and uh, uh, not too long ago, I said, you know, hey, son, what'd you learn in church? He goes, well, I learned about Jesus. I'm like, get your butt over here and sit down. They ain't going to work in this house, man. You tell me what you learned in church, and Jesus is not the answer, you know, that's going to get you off the hook. So uh, anyway, you know, I'm rolling the alleys, smoking cigarettes, not dialed in. And I got caught up with some friends and uh, really slid into the drug culture in our town. And really early, I was running around with guys that were a lot older than me in a whole lot of different stuff. And I spent about four years of my life in a drug addiction, a daily drug addiction. Uh, you know, it started off innocently enough, parties, those kinds of things, pot, alcohol. But for years, I was caught up in speed, meth, doing everything I could get my hands on. In fact, about, I've got about a four-year period in my life I honestly cannot remember. I can't tell you what happened in my childhood. I have no idea. But here's what I remember with great clarity. Standing outside of that church, smoking a cigarette, the Sunday morning, the sky was blue. Like, I can remember the birds chirping in the air. And I'd recently overdosed. I had uh, been in a situation where I was unconscious, I came to, there was no medical people involved, nobody really knew, but when I came to, you know, I realized, like, this is really scary, this is, I'm headed to a crossroads. Some of you have had this experience in your life where you know, like, where I'm headed, it's either, it's one of a few things, I'm either going to die, I'm going to get help, I'm going to go crazy, or I'm going to go to jail. You know, like there aren't a lot of other options out there. You know, this is, it's a while on a one-way train to one of these four places. And so I knew I needed help. And I wasn't sure I believed the Christian story. I wasn't sure I was down with Jesus. I just knew I needed help. And I'll never forget, I'm standing outside of that church, looking at the people walking in. And for the first time in my life, I just realized I am an absolute mess and I need help. And I walked into the doors of that church on my own terms with my own questions and my own concerns. And here's what happened. God in his grace allowed me to meet a little group of people in that church that met in a, had a Bible study after service. And I started, I became part of this Bible study. They, man, they weren't the cool kids. They were the weirdos, okay? You know, we were the oddballs, right? And we all sat around in this Bible study and they walked with me and they coached me. Uh, they prayed with me when I wanted to sort of go back to drugs and all of that stuff. They, they were just there as a safety net for me. And a couple things happened in my life. One is, I realized that the church, the people of God, saved my life. And if it wasn't for them, I would be like, I, I counted it up once. Every one of my friends in high school except one went to jail. Everyone but one. And that's where I was headed. There or death. And secondly, I wanted to give my life 
to help other people who are in similar situations find freedom and hope and grace in their life. And that happens in the church community. And friends, I've been sober now over 21 years. 21 years. I'm so thankful for that. And I look back at those years, and where would I be if it wasn't for the church? Where would I be if it wasn't for those people that loved me and walked with me and encouraged me and cared for me? And that's why I have so little tolerance for people that are just always criticizing the church. I love what Mark said earlier about, you know, it just makes me angry. Listen, bloggers are criticizing the church. Uh, People that have been in the church, our own, you know, people that are part of the church community love to criticize the church and write books and make money criticizing the church. You know, uh, uh, well-known statisticians in the church have recently made statements like if the church as it stands today is the hope of the world then the world has no hope and you couple all of that with the criticism that you face in a daily basis on ministry with the pressure that you face to deal with all of the challenges that you're up against with all of the things pulling against you I know some of you are in a place right now where you just want to tap out I mean, you got in your car, and you drove to Anderson, and you walked in, but if the truth be known right now, you just want to tap out. God, I'm, I'm done, man. I mean, you know, I, I don't know. Every, every, every pastor has, like, their fantasy of what they want to do, you know? Like, one, one friend of mine, he wants to work a hot dog stand, you know? He just wants to go and just be like, dude, ketchup or mustard? You know what I'm saying? Like, ketchup or mustard? Bam. Who's next, right? You know, um... You know, I, I want to work at a coffee shop. Like, you know, you give me that complex order, you throw it at me because I can make coffee drinks, man. I got it all. You know, what do you want? You want a double grande, three pump, a spray? Okay, bam, I'm going to do it. And then mission accomplished. You know, you know, one pastor used to go home after every weekend, he'd walk in and he'd walk to his toilet and he'd flush it. And it was his way of saying, the weekend is over. I'm done for the weekend. And now I'm off. Just a thought. Okay, so... I know some of you are there. You're frustrated. You're facing financial tensions. You've got uh, issues in your own family, in your own marriage. Some of you, your wives aren't, you know, they're no longer going to the church that you're a part of. They no longer, if they go, they don't want to go. You know, some of you are serving in churches that if you're honest, you would never attend if you weren't serving on the staff there. Don't look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. Some of you, you know, you're, you're, you're facing tensions with your elders and with the leadership of the church. And uh, I know there there are people that just want to tap out. I'll be honest with you. The last few years in Las Vegas, I've had some, uh, I just want to tap out moments. Uh, You know, we're we're in a city where um, 70% of homeowners are underwater on their homes. And uh, most of you guys can't even fathom that because when you think underwater on your home, you think like, oh, you're $10,000 under on your home. No, I'm talking $200,000 on their home. 50% of your home's value is gone. You're never going to get it back. Your life, your retirement, your future, the next 30 years looks different. You tracking with me? That's the psychology of it. One in five people are partially or completely unemployed in our church. One in five. And so we've been counseling, you know, all of these individuals. I've watched dear friends lose everything they've got again and again and again. And as I've walked through it, I've had moments where I just say, God, I, I don't know. I don't know if I can do it. I don't know if it's worth it. I'm being criticized by our culture. Our city hates what we do and what we stand for. The media hates what we do and what we stand for. Sometimes I feel like my own brothers in the church don't appreciate what we're trying to do. I mean, in the church, capital C, and what we stand for. Like, you know, can I just go sell hot dogs, man? And uh, had a moment recently. We, uh, we, we pulled our, our church, an outside organization came in, and they, they did a survey to kind of find out where people are at, what's going on in their lives the end of the survey, they said, they gave us all the report on the survey, but they said this was interesting. 98% of the people in your church say that the church saved their life. 98%. And what what they're trying to say is that God, through the grace of Jesus Christ, saved their life. But he used the people of the church to do it. And I got down on my knees and I wept. I said, all right, God, I'm in. I'm in, and I don't care how hard it gets, and I don't care if everybody goes away, and I don't have to survive, and I, I am in. I have put my hand to the plow, and I will not look back. I'm in. And I want to say to some of you that are waffling right now, that are discouraged right now, that are frustrated, put your hand to the plow 
and don't look back. Remember your calling. Remember what God is doing in your life. Remember the stirring he put in your heart and life and put your hand in that plow and go to work and focus on Jesus and be in the life-saving business because what you're doing through the local church community, listen to me, it is the most powerful, important thing that is happening on this planet. What you're doing through the local church community is the most powerful, important thing that is happening on this planet. It certainly isn't happening on Glenn Beck. It certainly isn't happening in Washington. It certainly isn't happening in all of the political and social structures in our culture. But in the church, it's happening. And lives are being impacted. And I want to talk to you about how we can be that church community that is a life-saving place for people who are hurting. You know, Jesus didn't come and die so that we would just go to church, right? He came and died so that we would be the church, so that we would become the church and reach out and make a difference in the lives of others. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to John chapter 4 in the New Testament of the Bible. John chapter 4. I want to talk to you about uh, the woman at the well today and just draw a few principles from this story that many of you are familiar with that you've read many times, that you've heard. This is a passage that's just been critical for me in my own life. And it's kind of become a defining passage for our church community. And maybe it's all contextual, you know, so it may not apply in quite the same way to you. But, you know, when I look at Las Vegas, I think Vegas is just made up of hundreds of thousands of people that are basically the woman at the well. And uh, so I love this story. Check it out. John chapter 4. Let's pick it up in verse 7. It says, as soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus says to her, please give me a drink, which I just want to pause there. What's fascinating to me about that question is it's not just that Jesus was thirsty. To give and receive a drink in the ancient world, it was almost like a contract. It was a statement of friendship. Basically, what Jesus is saying to this woman is, will you be my friend? Will you be my companion? And so he asked her for water. Now, check it out. It says uh, he was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. And the woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. And you know probably already some of the racial distinctions that were going on here. Samaritans were considered half-breeds. They weren't full-blooded Jews. Not only that, she was a woman. And traditionally, men in in a context like that wouldn't speak to women alone. And then you take it even further. It says Jews don't associate with Samaritans. And in the original language, when you look at some of that language, it literally goes back to this idea of Jews don't drink after Samaritans. And so here's what she says. She says, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Now, here's what I love about this passage. Jesus could have gone anywhere. He could have interacted with anyone. He could have interacted with heads of state or with political leaders. He could have interacted with the celebrity of their day or people who had strategic influence or people who could make a great impact. But Jesus sovereignly chose, think about this, to interact with a lonely five-time divorcee at a well where no one was looking and no one was around. He sought her. He sought her. And it reminds us that Jesus was about reaching the broken. He was about reaching the broken. And here's my challenge to you. It's simply this. Reach out to the broken, and you will always have an audience. Reach out to the broken, and you always will have an audience. So reach out to the broken. I mean, have you ever felt like church can become like the Christian prom? You remember prom, you know, like you go to prom and everybody dresses up, everybody looks a certain way, everybody smiles, everybody's kind of got their thing on, how you doing, I'm fine, how are you, man, I'm good, I'm golden. You know, and like, you know, everybody kind of interacts and then we just sort of all go our way. And I think, I think church sometimes feels kind of like the Christian prom. Everybody sort of dresses up, everybody looks nice, everybody, but the reality is people are carrying so much pain and so much baggage in their hearts and in their lives. And as Mark was talking about earlier, when you begin to break down that religious culture and to a culture of just people authentically trying to follow Christ in their life, and you're willing to connect with them in their pain and in their brokenness, their hearts will be wide open. Let me tell you something. Our culture is wide open to the message of Jesus and his grace. They are wide open. And I've found that you basically find what you think you're going to find when it comes to people. And what I find in Las Vegas, of all places, is a wide openness to the gospel of Jesus Christ, an openness to what it means to be a follower of Jesus, an openness to what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, and people are hungry for it. And I think part of the reason I find that is because I believe that's what I'm going to find, because the Holy Spirit's gone ahead of me, the Holy Spirit's done the work, God is calling and drawing people to himself, and all we do is we just come alongside and partner with God. It's our privilege to be part of that 
process, but reach out to the broken. In fact, you know, I love the interchange. As you look down in John chapter four, verse 16, Jesus is talking to this woman and you can imagine, you know, they're interacting. And, you know, at one point he says, go and get your husband, says Jesus told her. She says, I, I don't have a husband. Jesus says, you're right. You don't have a husband for you've had five husbands and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. You imagine like the, you hear the wind, you know, you know those moments of clarity? I can imagine all of a sudden, like, she's feeling the wind. She's hearing the birds chirping, the rocks under her feet. She suddenly feels the pressure of them, and it's like, I can see you are a prophet. <laughs> she's not, she never gets over it. She goes back to her hometown, and she's like, come see the guy who told me everything I ever did. You know, well, he didn't quite go that far, you know, but she's blown away by this moment. And he's reaching out to her in her pain and in her brokenness. Now, Here's what that's meant for us in the Las Vegas area that's been really helpful. We just asked a couple really simple questions. You go, to, you go to Mark, you go to Francis, you go to Perry, maybe not Perry, you go to these guys for the deep, deep stuff. Come on, Perry. But when you, when you, when you come to me, you get the basic stuff. Okay, here it is. Who's hurting that we can help in our community? Who is hurting that we can help? And who isn't being reached that needs to be reached? The most basic questions in the world. But let me tell you, we put them up on a whiteboard and we spent days working through those questions and what it meant for us in our church, in our community. And it laid out a game plan that has changed the last many years of our ministry. Who's hurting that we can help and who uh, needs to be reached that isn't being reached. And so, here, you know, as we started looking at that and thinking about what it meant to reach out to the broken God led us on this crazy journey. We started reaching out into the arts and entertainment area of, of the city of Las Vegas, a place where there wasn't a lot going on, and trying to just work relationally behind the scenes. It led us to start a recovery ministry. You know, that made us look around and realize that in Las Vegas, we had no drug and alcohol recovery ministry in our entire church. <laughs> Can you say idiot? <laughs> like, you know, at what point do you look around and go, you know, like, you're in the addiction capital of the nation. You might want to have a little AA group or something that gathers up, you know. So we started a recovery ministry. And uh, I can tell you today, thousands and thousands of people go through that recovery ministry. It's the largest in our state. It's for gambling, sex addiction, uh, alcoholism. It goes across the board. It's Christ-centered. It's focused on Jesus. It's amazing. And our church is filled with a bunch of ex-addicts and ex-people. you know, people. They're not really ex-recovery because I don't know if you ever get out of, out of recovery. And I love those people. And if you're afraid that if you launch a ministry like that, you might attract some weirdo kind of people and what you know, will be going on. Well, you're absolutely right. But let me also tell you this. Those people will die on the steps of the church. They will, man. Our people will die on the steps of Central Christian Church. And why? Because the church saved my life. And I'm loyal. And they may not have a lot of money. They may not have a lot of worldly power. But they got heart, man. And they got gratitude. And they're so thankful. And I'm so thankful that we've been, that it turned our heart as a church to say, we got to reach out to the broken and the hurting in our city. We do a chip night, you know, once a month. And, and chip night, you give out different chips for one month sobriety or a week sobriety or whatever it is, you know, or, or six months or a year. And I mean, you want to re- just get wrecked. Come on a Friday night on chip night when we're handing out chips and you're seeing hundreds and hundreds of people going forward getting one-year chips and two-year chips. When people go forward and get five-year chips and their wives walk down with them, tears rolling down their face, and they come up to me and they say, Judd, we'd been everywhere. We'd been, we'd been to drug and alcohol product. We'd been in California, you know, to invest it in, in secular recovery programs. I had given up on my family. The divorce papers were signed. We're celebrating five years that my husband found freedom, and it's only through Jesus. And I'll tell you, man, that's what you have to hold on to. That, you know, listen, the lady that's griping because the music was too loud, whatever, that's what I got to hold on to right there. You know what I'm, you know, every week, doesn't matter. Let me just tell you, when you get bigger, there's just more mail comes. Everybody think, you know, if we were big, nobody would criticize us anymore. Right. Good luck with that. You should see my inbox. If we were in Vegas, we wouldn't get criticized. Mm, right. 
Listen, the larger you get, the more you grow, don't be surprised, the more critics there will be. Everything just grows exponentially. More critics, more people you know, with opinions and perspectives. You've got to stay focused on reaching out to the broken. You will always have an audience. It led us to the prison. We started conversations with some people in our city. We found out in our city we have a women's prison. Check this out. 700 women go to this prison. Of the 700 women, we talked to the chaplain. You ready for this? The most she had ever had at a religious gathering of any kind, three. I'm dead serious. We go to the men's prison, same story. I'm talking zero spiritual influence in the prison system in our area. And so we came in with our recovery ministry, and, we, and only because we were able to use our recovery ministry did they open the door for us to then launch a church campus inside the prison. So I'm not just talking about running a service. We have launched our church inside the local prison, inside the detention center, inside a prison now in Oklahoma, inside the men's prison we're preparing to launch in, uh, in Nevada. And here's what we found in the women's prison. Check this out. It's so cool. Launch this prison, right? We're not going to get anything out of this, okay? You know, I'm the king of launching ministries that will never pay for themselves. But anyway, we're going to launch this ministry, and it's going to mean we're broke. And as Mark said last night, he goes, Judd, man, you guys in Vegas, like from a church standpoint, he goes, you're not just broke. You're like college broke. (laughs) Dude, that was gold. So we're college broke, but it's not stopping us from launching more things to help hurting people who may never contribute back to our church community. You know what I'm saying? All right. So we launched this thing, we fired off, and they only let us set up 300 chairs in the room. Now this isn't high tech, this is just one screen, we video in all the music, we video in all the teaching, and what we found in the prison system is, those people in the prisons, they want the outside world. They don't want somebody to come in and talk to them as a prisoner. They want to remember or experience what it feels like to be in community, to hear somebody talking about Walmart, you know, to hear somebody talking about their kids and interacting with them. Just a weird learning for us going through this whole process. So just put a screen up. We bring volunteers in. We start small groups around recovery ministries. Now here's what's happened. Literally every chair they set up every week in that prison is full when it comes time for church. So much so that recently they started opening up the outside area where like the prison you could go outside. So you got your choice. Go to church or go outside and do whatever you want. And I'm thinking, oh, it's over. Because, you know, when this thing started, all, all the lesbians in the back would be making out. And, you know, I mean, like, you know, because they're, they're, they're going to church so they can sit next to each other and do whatever they want when the lights are out. You know what I'm saying? This was going on. And what we've seen over the months is slowly those same women now are standing with their hands in worship. And they're having life-changing experiences. So much so that when they opened the outside yard, we filled every seat in church. And those women continue to go, and they're in Bible studies, and the warden has now opened the door through conversations. We have a green light to go in every prison in the state of Nevada and launch a church. Come on. It's huge. So if you'd like to fund that or partner with that, just call me up. Let me know. You know, I'll be happy to talk to you about that. So um, it was awesome. But the prison guard said something to one of our staff recently. He said, you, he said, it is literally changing the entire climate of this prison. He said, I cannot tell you how different it is when half the prison have become followers of Jesus and attend service and are in small group. He said, it's just flipped the whole place upside down. That's the power of the gospel. And that might not be your mission. It's not about necessarily reaching the down and out. The up and in are just as broken. They're hurting in their own ways. But reach out to the broken and you will always always have an audience. And if you do it, in whatever level, it's going to get messy. I mean, it's going to get messy. I remember, uh, I remember we had, a, we had a, an elder who, um, gosh, you know, elders, I love them. Um, <laughs> we had an elder who was frustrated by the kind of people we were reaching. And he actually pulled me aside and he goes, you know, I, uh, I, I don't know. He goes, I, we used to reach the lost people, but he goes, these people are really lost. I said to him, I said, what, what's the difference? You know, like lost is lost. He said, I'm not okay with my kids being in the children's ministry with their kids. And so we went, man, there was tension on our board. We struggled back and forth. You know how this goes. Like, and so I'll never forget the Saturday he called me. And uh, they were leaving the church. And he was resigning as an elder. 
but he, you know, he was leaving on good terms. You know, he was leaving with honor. He wasn't like trying to burn the church down. He was, he was just going to, God was moving him somewhere else. I'll never forget, Saturday morning, I hung the phone up. Nobody was at our house. I started running around our house singing, it's a beautiful day. You know, because I'm like, thank you, God. Sometimes you just need a movement, if you know what I'm saying, out. And uh, God bless them. They're great people. But, you know, it wasn't it? Listen, I remember the lady standing there in the lobby, and she's walking out of the church all angry. And she says, I'm done with this church. I said, why are you done with this church? She'd been around years before I'd been there. She said, um, I'm not sure what I'm going to catch when I sit in the seat that I'm sitting in because I don't know who was sitting there before. I said, well, don't let the door hit you on the way out. Because I think Jesus is more offended by that statement than he is by whatever that person's doing who's sitting in that chair. Reach out to the, but it'll get messy, man. The, you know, you start having women show up coming, uh, uh, you know, before work when they go to Hooters in their Hooters outfit. And this isn't to get attention. And this is just straight up. And they're walking in in their Hooters outfit. Yeah. You start having people show up that just come where they're, a couple weeks ago, uh, one, of our, one of our staff sent me this photo uh, that they took in our, in our church lobby, and they just got a kick out of this little kid's shirt. He came in, and he's just wearing this shirt. This family didn't know. They'd never been to our church before. They're just kind of walking in raw right off the street, and, and uh, so we, I brought an image. I thought you'd get a kick out of this. This little dude hung like daddy. <laughs> I think it says small and cute as a button or something like that. I don't know. <clears throat> Sorry, Perry. Um, and you know, that's funny, but is that funny? You know, some of you might even be bothered by that, like really disturbed that somebody would bring a kid to church in a shirt like that. And shouldn't they know better? Not if you start reaching out to the broken. They won't know better. And then it all hinges on how are you going to respond and deal with that and a hundred other issues that come with it. And we've just learned, man, major on the majors, not on the minors. And the majors for us is this family got out of bed, drugged their kid to church, which we all know is a heroic effort when you're not really a believer and you're just starting on the spiritual journey. And they came and they showed up and we're so thankful to meet them where they are and to take them to Jesus. I met with a woman recently. She came up to me. She said, Judd, she goes, uh, you don't know this, but she goes, I've been attending uh, the church for the past year. And, uh, you know, people in Vegas, there's not a high religious culture, so they just sort of say it, whatever it is, you know. And she goes, uh, you know, I'm a stripper. She said, I've been, uh, I dance um, Saturday nights until 5 o'clock in the morning on Sunday. I get off work. And she said, about a year ago, I felt like, man, I'm just, my life's empty. I hate what I'm doing. I hate what I'm involved in. And so she goes, I would stay up until the nine o'clock service Sunday morning and come in. She said, I started in the balcony and she said, I've slowly kind of moved my way down. She goes, I've listened to what you've said. I've been reading my Bible. She says, I know to follow Jesus is going to mean I have to change my life. She says, I realize it's going to mean it's going to impact me financially. It's going to impact my career. She goes, and so I've waited, but she goes, I just saw you. I wanted to walk up to you, and I wanted to say thank you. I've been coming for a year. And I said, well, are you tired of waiting? And she just looked at me, tears in her eyes, almost immediately. And she goes, yeah. I said, well, let's deal with it. Said, Would you like to just ask Christ to come into your life right now? Now, I'm, I'm an evangelist, so, you know, I know some of you are like, whoa. <laughs> that stuff doesn't freak me out. And she looked at me, and she goes, yeah, I would. I said, okay, well, you know, I'm just going to ask you to take a step, repeat this prayer after me. And it wasn't the sinner's prayer straight up. You know, it wasn't like Billy Graham moment. I just said, you know, we're just going to have an authentic conversation with God, dealing with sin and the cross and forgiveness. We prayed together. At the end of that prayer, her makeup's running all down her face. She's bawling her eyes out. She like jumps up into my arms. She's hanging on to me. And this is what she keeps saying again and again and again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And it was a moment, again, for me of just saying, all right, God, I'm not tapping out. I don't care how hard that submission hold is. I don't care how hard they twist or kick or hit. I'm in, and I'm in for this. To see broken and hurting people experience your grace, just like I did so many years ago, and start that journey.
So reach out to the broken. Second thing that I sort of pull out of this uh, passage in John 4 that's helped us be the church is simply this. See restriction as an opportunity. See restriction as an opportunity. Jesus comes along and she's talking, he's talking to a woman who gets drought, who gets going without, who gets having uh, uh, to struggle with this issue of water and having enough water. Water was a huge issue in their culture and having enough water. And here she is as a, at a well getting water, which they had to trek out to, you know, on a regular basis. And so he uses that. He says, anyone who drinks this water will soon be thirsty again, but those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling string within them, giving them eternal life. And so he he talks about the need, but he goes beyond the need. You see that? And he uses the need as an opportunity. What we've learned in Vegas, something Mark addressed just recent, just in the last message, is that God will use that suffering and that pain and that constriction as an opportunity. It is an opportunity. But you know what we have to get beyond is seeing it as a problem. Well, you look at that and we go, what's the problem? There's no water. What's the problem? There's no money. What's the problem? There's no staff. What's the problem? I can't teach like those guys can teach. Our worship is, it sucks. You know, our, uh, our children's ministry, it's not good. You know, what's the problem? Like our campus, have you seen our campus? It's embarrassing. What's the problem? Uh, our church smells funky. Some of you, you, you serve in churches like this, they just... They always smell funky every time you walk in. Like I used to pastor a little church of 100 people. It didn't matter what I did. Every time I opened the door of that little church, I'm like, ah. You know, like, Glade didn't do it. Candles didn't do it. Forget the fire marshal, you know. Light them up. Just, this is a smell, man. It's going away. So what's your problem? You know, what's the area that you look at and all you see is the problem? My challenge to you is look beyond the problem. Reframe it in your mind. See it as an opportunity. It's an opportunity for Jesus to be glorified and exalted. It's an opportunity for him to work in your ministry in such a way that only he will get the glory. In Las Vegas, you know, our constriction has been largely financial. And we've had to work really hard to face some of those challenges and to not kind of go into neutral and just see the problems and look beyond the problems and see them as opportunities for Christ to form us and shape us. I'll never forget, I was teaching uh, uh, our church through the book of Job. Your people start losing everything. It, you know, one in five people in your church start starts having experiences where they're dealing with health and they have no health care insurance. They're already bankrupt. They're foreclosed. They have no job. That's a lot of people in your church community. So where do you go when the rubber meets the road? You go to Job. You take that health and wealth stuff and shove it somewhere, man. When the crap hits the fan, you go to Job, right? Come on. You with me? You go, to, you go to Job who says, God is sovereign, nothing is happening in my life that the almighty sovereign God is not allowed to pass before him and allowed to happen in my life, and I will worship him whether I survive or not. Though he slay me, I will trust him. And our church, in a period of about four weeks, grew up. All of a sudden, we went from being you know, kind of like a mile wide and an inch deep To me standing on the platform one weekend, I'm looking out at all these people going through so much crap in their life, hands in the air. I've just taught for four weeks about the absolute, unmovable sovereignty of God over the suffering in your life. People are worshiping that God with their hands in the air. And for the first time in a long time in that moment, I think the Holy Spirit just impressed on my heart. I am well pleased with this. It was huge for us. But it would have never happened without restriction. Would have never happened without suffering. Would have never happened without, that, without, without some of those things that we had to go through as a church. So in the last few years, let me just help frame it up for you. Some of you, you're saying, I have no resources. I can't do it. We don't have the building. We can't do it. We don't have this. We can't do it. We don't have the cool pastor. We can't do it. You know, we don't have, you know I work a full-time job and work at the church. We can't do it. All right. In the last uh, couple years... Our church has grown 35% on less money than we had two years ago. And we're sustaining it with less money and less staff and less people and less resources. And the way we've done that is the grace of God. And it's also this. We had to, first of all, fight the martyr mentality. You will have a martyr mentality. You got to fight it. It's some of you, it exists in your staff right now. What do I mean by a martyr mentality? Oh man, you know. We just don't have it like they do, you know. 
I mean, you know, I, I, you know, I can't teach like Perry, uh, uh, you know, our, our, our senior pastor. Well, you know, he's kind of overweight and bald and, you know, he's just not, not, you know, we just, you know, it's just, we don't have it. And, and uh, we don't, we don't have the resources. We don't have the money. We don't have the unity. We don't, you know, we have Baptist in our name or whatever, you know, like, you know, people just drive by, they see the sign and they're just like, well, screw that, you know, and they just keep driving, <laughs> you know, whatever it is for you, right? It, you know, just pick and choose. It's the martyr mentality. And we did that for too long at Central. We walked around and we thought, we don't, you know, we don't have any money. You know, we're just, you know, everybody, it's all falling apart and the world's ending. And, you know, what, what are we going to do? And we finally had to shift beyond that and say, no more. No more martyr mentality. Listen, Jesus went to the cross. You, listen, you want comparison? Go to, the, go to the rest of the world. Go look at what, go look at 100,000 people gather in a park in Chile for church. And they're not complaining about whether the AC worked or not. They're not dealing with some of the same issues that we get caught up in dealing with. Stop focusing on what you don't have and focus on what you do. Stop focusing on what you don't have and focus on what you do have. Second thing we had to do was find the yes. Because here's what happens. When you're in constriction, everything around you is no. Have you noticed this? Can we do this? No. Can we do that? No. Can we do this? No. And then pretty soon, you stop asking. You just say it in your head. Can we? No. Can? No. No. And then the next step is you stop thinking those thoughts altogether, and now you're just completely in neutral. You're just cruising along. And we got there, and we had to eventually get everybody together and say, the answer is yes. Really? The answer is yes. Yes, we're going to figure it out. Yes, we're going to find a way. Yes, we're not going to say no yet. Yes, we're going to explore it. Yes, we're going to try and do it without money. Yes. And here's where it led to us. Like we wanted to launch several years ago, you know, a lot of churches doing online campus and, and, and we, you know, we wanted to do some online things in the online world and we just didn't have the resources at the time. And so, you know, our staff started picking up the phone and we just said, look, never stop on your first no. The answer is yes. We just got to find the person in the world Who's going to say yes? And we had, we had staff. They just started picking the phone up, cold calling companies, people who created websites and portals that would allow. We had a staff member find a guy, check this out, an elder of a church in California that we had no connection with who had created the same software we needed for our church campus experience online. He had created that for a secular company. And he said, I'll give it to you for a few thousand dollars. I can't give you his number, but it was really cool. <laughs> Why? Because you said, we said, we're going to find the yes. We're going to find the yes. And so that's been huge for us. Search for it. Don't just stop because of constriction. And what you'll see is God moving in that. You know, if we've started to act like a small, we're a large church. We start to act like a very small church. I put tables out in the back. I'm like, you know what I noticed walking in this weekend is the hallways in our church look horrible and the floor is in bad, bad shape. We need people this week to sign up. Half of you are unemployed anyway. Go sign up, come in, get a paintbrush, and start fixing up your church campus. And people went freaking nuts. Hundreds of people signing up, man, showing up with paint. We got people now showing up at our church on a regular basis, many of them who volunteer 40 hours a week. Because they're unemployed and they're tired of sitting around, closing up the blinds with nowhere to go and no opportunities available to them. And they've looked for jobs for months and months and months. And they show up and they go look for work a little bit in the morning. And then they come and they spend about 40 hours a week serving. We just made them staff. Boom, your staff. Here's your lanyard. You get the lanyard, you know. Here's your paintbrush. Go to work. And they've done it. It's awesome. But it would have never happened without that constriction. That constriction happened. It's like a friend of mine, he, he said, you ever think about Houdini? Houdini, you know, did all of these amazing escapes. And every one of those amazing escapes happened in incredible constriction. In fact, you think about Houdini's escapes. Houdini basically was able to do his most incredible feats when his life was on the line. I mean, you know, you lock a guy up, put him in a bodysuit thing, put chains all over him, put him in a box, lock the box, throw him in the ocean. Figure it out, dude. You're going to figure it out, whether your arm comes out of socket, whether you're twisting your arm in such ways that you would never physically be able to twist it before. And Houdini would strategically place himself in situations where the stakes were that high and then figure out how to get out of it. That never happens outside of constriction. So see your constriction as a potential opportunity 
The Houdini principle can apply to you as well. And when it does, we call it grace and the movement of the Holy Spirit. And he accomplishes more in us than we could ever accomplish on our own. Acts chapter 3, verse 6. I love this. Peter and John are walking along. They come up to the temple. And, uh, uh, you know, here's a beggar who's there. And he, he, he looks to him. He's expecting to get money. This is one of my favorite passages in the Bible, especially the last few years. But Peter said, I don't have any silver or gold for you. I'll give you what I have. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, get up and walk. I love this passage. Listen, God is not calling you to give what you don't have. Peter says, I'll give you what I have. And what I have is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is more powerful than the coolest church band, the coolest church lights, the coolest church graphic, the coolest church thing that we could ever throw money at. What we have is the power of the gospel that can transform people's lives. And so he says, I'll give you what I have in the name of Jesus. Get up and walk. And here's what happens when you stop looking at what you don't have and you realize what we have is tremendous. You start looking at people differently. And now you walk up to that person that's in an addiction and you say, you know what? I can't give you money in the midst of your addiction, but here's what I'll give you. In the name of Jesus, get up out of that addiction and walk in the freedom of Jesus Christ. Get up out of that failure. Get up out of that depression. Get up out of that loss. Get up out of that alcoholism. Get up out of that divorce that you're facing. Get up out of the crash that's going on in your family and walk in the light and in the love of Jesus Christ. Get up and walk. And some of you, I hope if you get nothing else out of this today, when you're driving back tonight, the Holy Spirit grabs your heart and reminds you of that passage to say, stop looking around at what you don't have. Stop whining. Stop being a martyr. Rise up and walk in the power of Jesus Christ. And he will move when you do. So see constriction as an opportunity. And then the third thing that's been helpful to us is simply this. Tell the truth in love. Just tell the truth in love. I, I, I really appreciate the way Jesus navigates this conversation with the woman at the well. He talks to her about worshiping in spirit and truth and clarifies a few things for her. And in the midst of their conversation, you get down to John chapter 4, verse 25. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. That's the truth. That's the bedrock. That's the core. And he laid it out for her. And it began to impact not only her life, but the lives of those in the nearby town and the surrounding villages. Friends, tell the truth and tell it in love. Don't ever be afraid of the truth of Jesus, of who he is, of the power of the gospel. Here's what I've found over the years. The bolder I get about telling the truth about Jesus, the more impact the message of Jesus has in people's lives. The bolder I get about telling the truth about who Jesus is, about telling the truth of what the Bible says, the more impact. You're just releasing more impact because you're releasing more of what God's already revealed into the hearts and into the lives of your people. And don't hold back and think, man, you know, we got to pull that back because I don't know, you know, believers and seekers and all that. Listen, you know what? I just see them as people now, just people. And if they're going to be Christian people, they need the whole counsel of God's word so they know what the heck they're getting into. And just lay it out. And as you lay it out, God's spirit will surprise you and move in people's lives in a way you never thought possible. I remember a reporter recently came to our church and, (laughs) (coughs) excuse me, this reporter came in and you know, he thought he might have found a new version of Christianity. He was really excited, young guy, you know, and he's writing up this article. And he's sort of describing it in his article. He comes in, the music's loud. The pastor comes out and looks like a roadie for Nickelback, you know. So he's like, okay, you know, right on. Then he goes, but then he started talking. And the more he talked, the more frustrated I became. And the more he talked, the more angry I became. He said, if you want to know Judd Wilhite's perspective, see the Bible. I'm like, that's the first article on our church that I'm carrying around going, do you see this article? This article rocks. Did you see this article? Frame it, put it in my office, see the Bible. Teach the truth, release it, and release it in love. Listen, don't try to be cool. Too many churches trying to be cool. Don't even try to be creative. Everybody's trying to be creative. Just try to tell the truth about yourself, And the truth about Jesus, I love what C.S. Lewis said. He said, if you try to be original, you'll never be original. 
He said, all in, li in literature and arts, he said, everybody who tries to be original isn't original. He said, but if you try to tell the truth and you don't care one rip, my word, one rip about being original, you will be original in, just in your own way. You will inevitably be original. So we came back at our worship team, our programming team, our arts team so years ago, and we said, you know what? What we're going to be concerned about is telling the truth about God and the truth about our own lives. And that's the main thing. And it meant some things for us. People were walking out of our church, and I'm telling you, man, we could wire it up. Dude, we could have, we, in Vegas, we could have people swinging from the rafters. We could have them swirling down over the people. We could do mystere right there in our auditorium. I'm serious. We got that kind of people, that kind of talent, that kind of gear. We can, there, there are no limits. Bring it. You know, the Blue Man group cracking me up. One of the Blue Man guys saw some of our guys, uh, uh, you know, at a, at, a, at a venue out in Las Vegas and, and heard they were part of our church. He goes, dude, the word is in the entertainment circles, the best free show in town is at Central. So that, that was cool from that standpoint. But I want you to know what was on our heart. We made a strategic decision and we said, less programming. Because we felt like people in the parking lot of our church were walking out talking more about their experience and the cool stuff and all the swizz bang stuff we could do, and they were talking less about Jesus. We started pulling our programming back. Uh, less props. I used to, I've done it all, man. Rap, you know, swung down from the ceiling, you know, you, you know preached upside down on a gurney, um, you know, just done it all. I could go on and on. I could go on for 30 minutes about all the crap I've done over the years, right? And that's good. Like, if you're doing that this weekend, God bless you, man. I'm sure it's going to be a really powerful message. <laughs> it's going to impact people. Good for you. you know, I'm not down in that. Like, every, every, in every context is different. But in our context, here's what happened. We started realizing people were walking out, and here's what they were saying. They were saying, man, I like that Judd guy. He preached upside down. I like that Judd guy. You know, he, he, he scaffold, scaffolded in from the ceiling. I like that Judd guy. I like that Judd guy. And we said, that's the wrong message. That's failure, cataclysmic, absolute, total failure for a church. I used to get real concerned about humor, you know, and really working jokes, man. I could, you know, and once you get a crowd going, you know, especially a Vegas crowd, even a sober, somewhat sober Vegas crowd, man, you get them going. I mean, you know, but they'd walk out and they'd say, he's so funny. And the Holy Spirit just convicted me, man. This is not about you, little man. Who do you think you are? And uh, we made strategic shit. I'm way more subdued. There are times where I don't tell jokes intentionally. There are times we don't use humor now where we would have in the past. I think it's just a maturing process. There are times where we only use those creative elements if it's going to drive home the truth of Jesus and the truth of who he is for our lives. And our goal, the win, is people in the parking lots walking out to their cars going, Jesus, man, he's captured that guy's heart. That Jesus, man, there, there may be something to this Christian thing. I may want to reconsider. Let's tell the truth in love. And let God show up in that. And he will. And he'll move. And uh, we just did a nine-week doctrine series in Vegas. It was awesome. You know, people are hungry. They're starving for the truth of God's word. Just lay it out there and let God work in their hearts and lives. And don't apologize for it. It's not your word, it's God's word. God can apologize. He can take care of himself, right? Just tell the truth. Tell it in love. Reach out to the hurting. You'll always have an audience. One of my favorite stories around Central is a buddy of mine named Cody. Seven years ago, uh, Cody was, uh, he would, he was on his way to being a millionaire, became a crack addict, was sleeping in a field next to our church, and um, he had literally gone through over $600,000 that he had to his name over the course of a period uh, with crack and crack addiction. So he's sleeping in the field next to our church. He's at the absolute bottom of himself. He hasn't had a, a shower, he says, in, in, in over three months. He weighs 130 pounds. He said, I stunk so bad, Judd, that the homeless were avoiding me. I mean, you got to stink. You know what I'm saying? He said, I heard that I could go to Central and get a shower there. So he said, I walked in on Sunday morning, wanted nothing to do with God, nothing to do with faith, and a woman walked up to me and she said, you look like you need a hug. He said, at that moment, all I wanted to do was put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger. He said, I looked at that woman and said, you don't want to hug me. I stink. And she said, no, you need a hug. And he hugged him, one of our volunteers. She looked him in the eye and she said, Jesus loves you. 
And he said, a door in my heart cracked. And he'd been on a spiritual journey. Later, he told me that uh, he stole a Bible from our little church library, and uh, he, never, he never gave it back. I'm like, Cody, keep the Bible, bro. We're all good. He went on a journey, and God began to move in his heart and life. He got clean. He got sober. We helped him get a job. Four years later, the mayor of Las Vegas issued an edict that you could no longer feed the homeless on the streets of Las Vegas. He was making it a law. You could not feed a guy a sandwich on the streets of Las Vegas. We're going to make it illegal. And my buddy Cody sees this on TV and gets infuriated. And he goes and uh, he, he, he basically challenges the law. He's, he's, he's got this rinky-dink attorney that he's got. He's got no power. He's got no money. And here he is. Can you imagine? This went on in our court system. It was about to go to trial. And the judge pulls it all up. Here's Cody standing over here. No influence. No power. Here's uh, Oscar Goodman, our mayor's people, all sort of lined up in their power seats. And the judge looks over at Goodman and says, you can't discriminate against one group and not against another. Rules in favor of my buddy Cody and throws it out. And the reason you can feed a homeless guy in the streets of Las Vegas today a sandwich is because of a homeless dude named Cody who came to meet Jesus who said, I'm not done. And he got infuriated because of injustice in our culture and he stood up for it. And it's not over. I wrote about him in a book I wrote years, a few years ago called uh, Strip. The paperback was Uncensored Grace, Tell a Story. And his wife, uh, uh, a while later, he, um, we get a call at our church from a woman who basically says, I've been looking for my father. He doesn't know that I exist. I knew he was homeless and on the street for many years. We knew that we've tracked him to Las Vegas. I've read the chapter in your book. I think this might be my dad. This woman's an attorney and a believer. She said, I've spent probably $50,000 trying to find who my dad is. I said, well, I can't, like, you know, give you his number, but I could give him your number. We took her number, passed it on to Cody. I kid you not, they connect, reconnect. It is his daughter. He not only has a daughter in San Francisco he has, who are believers in Jesus, he has kids and grandkids. And it is so cool that God took a guy out of a field next to our church who now owns his own business, who serves the homeless, who God used strategically in our city so that the homeless could be fed, who not only that, God showed him he had a family and a daughter and grandkids that he's teaching about Jesus, that he goes up to visit. And I just look at Cody's story and I'm like, God, it's all worth it. It's all worth it. What you're doing is the most important thing that's happening in this world at this time. And so give yourself to it. Put your hand to the plow. Reach the broken. You will always have an audience. And realize God is doing his work in their hearts and lives. And he's not done. Thanks for your time. God bless you.